0: Now, as we turn to chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus turns from talking to the Pharisees and telling the story of rich man and Lazarus, and he turns to his disciples, and he gives sort of some commentary on those stories. He tells them, okay, because of this, here's what you need to understand, and that's what we find here in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 17. He warns them against the trap that the Pharisees were in. Listen, the mouse thinks they they hit the cheese jackpot until the wire snaps shut, right? And he's warning them, you may think you hit the cheese jackpot, but that wire will snap shut. So do this instead. This life is a moment. But that doesn't mean that this moment is insignificant. What you do with it matters. What you do with it needs to be in light of eternity. And so if obedience to God is good, how can we do it? How can we do what is good and how can we persist in it? Two relationships are integral to our obedience. We're going to see these in the text in verses 1 through 4. We're going to see how obedience works within the community of faith. And then in verses 5 through 10, we're going to see how obedience relates to the Christ of faith. So we're going to look at obedience within the community of faith, and then we're going to look at obedience to the Christ of faith. First, what does obedience look like in the community of faith? Turning to his disciples, as I said, Jesus gives them instructions in regard to obedience and community with one another. And he gives them four duties here in verses 1 through 4. And these duties are critical. They're critical because, first, the community of faith is the context in which we are obedient or disobedient. The community of faith, this is, this is, a, this is a free for you. This is three extra points that weren't actually on my points, okay? Dom loves it when I do this. Okay, this is a little bit of why. Why does it matter? Why does the community of faith matter to our obedience? One, because it's the context in which we are obedient or disobedient. Two, because the community of faith is actually the means of God to keep us obedient. Do you understand, church, that those around you here are actually the means that God has to keep you obedient, to keep you persisting in faith, persisting in obedience to the end, to keep you faithful? That's why it matters so much to be in a church Why a Christian must be in a church, actually belonging to that church, knowing the people, people knowing you, and persisting in that church. If you run to another church, as soon as someone does what this passage says and rebukes your sin, that's to your detriment. It's not for your benefit. You may run to a new church and it may be comfortable, but I tell you what, the rich man wasn't very comfortable for eternity and you need to consider that. Third, the community of faith is the beneficiary of your obedience. So, it's the context in which you're obedient, it's the means that God has to keep you obedient, but it's also the beneficiary of your obedience or the victim of your disobedience. The community of faith matters because your obedience or disobedience is not just yours, it's the community's. When you violate God's word, you do harm to everyone else in this room. You need to understand that. You think your sin is just your sin, it's not. That's not how the Bible portrays it. Your sin is not just your sin. Your sin is sin to the community. And on the other end, your obedience is not just your obedience. It's not just blessing for you, it's a blessing for the community, right? When you obey Christ, we all benefit. Your family benefits, your spouse benefits from that obedience. Okay, so there's my, extra, there's my extra three points that aren't actually my points. Okay, so if you don't care about your fellow Christian's obedience or your fellow Christian's disobedience, then either you don't understand or know what God's Word says about sin and your, our responsibilities in that, or you don't believe God's Word when it says that sin really is that bad and obedience really is that good, or or you just don't love your church and your fellow Christian. It's one of those three. You either don't understand, you don't actually believe God's word, or you don't actually love your fellow Christian. If you're not willing to do these four duties here. Okay, so now I've set up these matter. Have I set that up well? All right, let me let me see what the duties are. Four duties. Duty one, guard against not obedience. I know that's not very grammatically good, But I do that for emphasis. Guard against not obedience. Temptation to sin will come, Jesus says. He uses this word uh, stumbling blocks, right? Um, In verse 2, the one, uh, uh, where am I? It should cause one of these little ones to sin or to stumble, depending on your translation. There is no way to completely rid ourselves of these traps, these stumbling blocks, these things that trip us up, right? But he says, he war- Jesus warns us, woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better, he says, to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. Do you really believe that false teaching that leads people into sin? That for the false teacher it would have been better for them to have drowned physically. Do we really believe that? Jesus really believes it. Jesus teaches it, and that's not very nice. It doesn't it's sort of a, a, gra- a very graphic illustration, is it not? But the strength of the warning must be weighed against the strength of the threat. Do you really believe that false teaching that leads people into sin is that significant of a threat? That your sin, that sin permeating into a community of faith because the teaching is corrupt, because the teaching leads to stumbling, that it's that big of a f- of a threat to the community that it would have been better for the teacher to have died than to teach that. Every day, I, every Sunday when I come up here, that is, that's a weight. And I thank God for his grace because I know that there have been times in the past where I have taught things and I look back and I think I was wrong. And that may have led someone into sin. God, please, 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 I pray that you have brought someone into that person's life to correct them where I was wrong. It's not unloving. It's not unloving to say, if you do what may harm my children, then I will kick you out of my house. It's not an unloving thing to say. In fact, it actually is what love demands. If someone is in your house who intends to do your entire family wrong, the most loving thing you can do is to kick that person out of your house. Church, if someone is in the church who is teaching something that intends to cause the church to lead them into sin, into greater and greater sin, the most loving thing we can do is to confront that sin and get it out. But do we actually believe that sin has that, that strong of consequences. That, that, that our sanctification, that our holiness in Christ really does matter that much. Here's the tricky part. These stumbling blocks are things that we may not see immediately. When someone says, watch out, our immediate response is often offense, is it Not? Look, I know how to walk without tripping. Why are you telling me to watch out? You think you know how to walk so much better than I know how to walk? I've been walking more years than you've been walking. Right? We, we, this is kind of how we, how we do it spiritually. I'm an adult Christian. I know how to not trip and fall. It's hard to think we may be wrong. Pride comes in, keeps us from admitting that maybe we didn't see something that someone else actually did see. And friends, listen, the farther culture moves away from God's word, the darker things are around us, the more likely it is that we won't actually see the thing that trips us, right? The darker the room is, the more likely it is that you will trip and fall. How many times have you walked through a room just fine in the light, but when the lights are down, you trip on something because you didn't see it. And when the lights, if you will, of our culture around us are dim because the culture has ran from God's word, you need to understand that there's going to be more opportunity for us to trip and we need to watch out for each other all the more. And we need to constantly check things by the light of Scripture. Scripture is the flashlight to get us through the room without tripping. So our first duty is to guard against not obedience. Our second duty is to watch our own obedience. It says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. This uh, uh, term, pay attention, is, it, it, it's like a constant, continuous, careful kind of watching. If believers don't care about their own obedience first, then we will inevitably drag everyone else down even if we don't intend to. The person who's drowning often drags the person who comes to help them under as well, even if unintentionally, just because they're drowning, right? When more people are sinking in the deep end than there are people who are not, it becomes hard for a community to guard against sin. And so we need to watch ourselves. And friends, this is especially relevant, I think, to parents You are not only commanded by God to disciple your kids, but families are ordered in such a way that you will disciple your kids. You can't get around it. Your life will teach your children something. Your life will influence them, whether you try or not. Are we carefully, constantly, continuously keeping watch of our own behavior, knowing that it is having an effect on our children every day, 24-7, every year? But this doesn't mean we only pay attention to ourselves. In fact, part of paying attention to ourselves is making sure that we're doing what we need to do for the rest of the community. Part of paying attention to ourselves is making sure that we are doing these next commands. Duty three, rebuke Christians for disobedience. Listen, we can listen to sermons that faithfully preach God's word, and we can genuinely applaud them for their faithfulness, but when someone faithfully applies that very word of God directly to you in somewhere where you are disobedient, oftentimes our response becomes something very different does it not? Suddenly we're not applauding. Suddenly we're offended. We're angry. We don't like it. I get it. I've been there when people have rebuked me. It's fine. God's word is fine in generalities from the pulpit, but if we truly love faithfulness to God, it's going to be seen in how we respond to those who apply the word directly to us and rebuke us when we sin. I know for me, oftentimes, my immediate response is not very good, but then I go home and I sit on it, I go to bed that night, I wake up the next morning and I go, man, they're right. Man, I really do want to obey God. And they're right. If we're willing to apply it, When necessary to our own lives, are we willing to apply it to the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ as well? You know, so often, so often when Christians think uh, about rebuking, they think that rebuking is unloving. It's an inherently unloving thing. How could we rebuke someone that feels unloving? But it, but it's actually a basic Christian duty. Do you understand? Jesus is saying this is a basic Christian duty. So long as sin exists, rebuke is necessary. A church with no rebuke is a church that has no love for Christ's bride and thus no love for Christ. Listen, if if my wife is doing something that's going to do her harm, I tell her because I love her. Do you love the church? Do you love Christ's bride? There are, of course, better and worse ways to do this. <laughs> we could do a whole sermon series on ways to and ways not to rebuke someone, right? How we do it does matter, but, but not knowing how to do it best is no excuse for not doing it. That's what I want you to understand. Not understanding how to do it best is no excuse for just not doing it. If you say, I'm, I don't know how to do that the best, so I'm just not going to do it, that's still sin. Sin. That's disobedience to the duties that Christ has actually given you. We actually learn, look, God's big enough to handle your messy way of obeying him. He can handle it. He can handle it because he actually, in this text, has given us the way he handles it. That's the fourth duty. We're actually to forgive one another. So when you rebuke and you do it poorly, and the person goes, man, you were right, but why were you such a punk in the way you did it? And then you say, you know what, you're right, I was a punk in the way I did it, I am sorry. And then that person says, you know what, I forgive you for that. Thank you for loving me enough to do it, even sucky, because you don't know how to do it very well, but you did it anyways because you love me enough to be daring enough, bold enough to obey Christ, because you love the church. And then we forgive one another. And we let it go. The problem with the church isn't, I mean, there is a problem with sin. But the problem with the church really is we don't do these basic duties. We don't deal with sin rightly. That's the problem. Because if we did, That sin would be just a hiccup that God would take and turn actually to create sanctification in his church. He actually intends those things for good, Romans 8. To make us like Christ. That's the good of Romans 8 when it says, God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. The good there in the text contextually is likeness. That's the good. Do you believe that Christ's likeness is better is better than your comfort and your convenience? The Bible does. Jesus does. Do we? I'm getting ahead of myself. This command to rebuke one another is, is actually uh, grounded Jesus is riffing off of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. It says there, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly. The phrase reason frankly is similar in wording to the, the idea of rebuke in this passage. So you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, you shall rebuke your neighbor, lest you incur, lest you incur sin because of him. Do you understand what it's saying? It's saying, first, not only, not only, uh, is do you need to rebuke your your brother because it saves him from his own sin, but it also gives us two other reasons why we need to rebuke. First, because rebuking is God's hedge against hate. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Instead, do this, rebuke them. When someone keeps sinning against you and you refuse to rebuke them, but you just continue to stew on it, you you continue to become more and more bitter about the fact that they keep doing this, You're actually producing hate in your heart, and that's your fault, not theirs, because you didn't rebuke them, because you didn't tell them, why are you doing this? This hurts me. This is sin. So don't blame them if bitterness grows in your heart because you were too cowardly to confront them about their sin. God says that that he actually gave you this to keep that from happening. It's, it's, it's to be a hedge against your sin. When someone sins, especially against you, we sit on it, we become bitter and more sin happens. Or perhaps we misunderstood their actions and if we would have just gone to them to rebuke them, they could have clarified and go, oh, oh well you weren't trying to hurt me. I didn't understand. And now hate doesn't grow in our own hearts. Second, The second way that This actually helps us with sin. Rebuking is God's hedge against further sin. What happens then is we grow in hatred towards that person, and then we begin to respond to that person differently, do we not? We begin to do hateful things to them. We begin to sin against them. Why? Because we weren't obedient to rebuke them for their sin. And now we are sinning. Listen, this is why Satan wants Christians to think rebuking is mean and hateful. Because rebuke is the lost tool for killing sin and promoting unity in Christian community. Rebuke is the lost tool for killing sin and promoting unity in Christian community community. Satan would love for you to think that rebuking people is hateful and mean because it actually produces, God's word says, more hate when you don't rebuke. You know, it's not terribly hard to find a church community where people will say nice things about Jesus and about you and then mostly leave you alone. And that may seem comfortable, until sin begins to fester and grow underneath the surface until you realize that your own sin was left unchecked and it's done damage to your life and to your marriage and to your family sadly it's hard to find a church that's willing to do what's uncomfortable in order to help others be conformed to Christ's image it's hard to find a church with people who care more about your sanctification, your holiness, than they care about their comfort. Duty four, forgive Christians who repent. Forgive Christians who repent. Perhaps part of the reason we don't want to rebuke people is that they may actually repent and then we'd have to forgive them. Right? I'd rather just be, I'd rather just be bitter towards you. I'd rather just allow myself to just hate you for what you did to me because if, you, if I actually rebuke you and you repent, then, then God's word commands me to forgive you. And oh man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to do that. That's work on my part. It's easier to grumble and point fingers than to forgive and to trust. The command is really not complicated and it's often repeated in Scripture. This is all over the New Testament. If your brother in Christ repents, even if it happens repeatedly, so long as he really does repent, you must forgive him. Think about yourself. How often have you sinned in the morning and repented to God? Lord, I'm so sorry. And genuinely repented. And by the afternoon, you've done that sin again. If you're like me, then that's happened. I don't have to take too long to think of examples of that. And how merciful has God been to you in that? How merciful has God been to you in that? Part of what makes this confusing in our day, even among Christians, is is the church has followed culture in making forgiveness into a subjective, therapeutic, and primarily individual procedure. Forgiveness is just something that I do over here in my heart. It doesn't really actually... There's no there's no relational interaction that happens. I just kind of forgive you in my heart by myself to make me feel good. But that is not forgiveness in scripture. That's not what scripture how scripture describes it. Scripture describes it as an objective, relational, two-way interaction. There's a person who repents, and there's a person who forgives. And that really changes the relationship. It restores the relationship. Worse yet, we, we then take our new definition of forgiveness that the world has actually written, not the Bible, and then we import it into Scripture and understand forgiveness that way, and so we understand Christ's forgiveness that way, and we miss the point of Christ's forgiveness, that you really do need to repent of your sins in order for Christ to forgive you. Jesus isn't just over here in heaven by himself just going, you know what, I'm just going to kind of like... No, he commands us to repent and to believe on him, to trust that he really has forgiven us. Consider a few details from our passage. The one who sins actually repents to the one who forgives prior to the forgiveness being granted. Look at the text. It says... If he sins against you seven times and he turns to you, he turns to you saying, he actually says to you, there is a real relational interaction that's happening here, I repent, then you forgive them. While our hearts should always be gracious and ready to forgive, everywhere in Scripture, repentance always precedes forgiveness. There's a real human interaction wherein the offender confesses and repents to the offended party, and then the offended party forgives. That's the second thing I want you to notice. When the sinner repents, the other really does Forgive, just as the act of repentance is a heart change that produces a real change in behavior, so the act of forgiveness is a heart condition that produces a real change in behavior. You really do act differently towards that person because you've forgiven them. There's an objective relational thing that's happening there. It's not just a subjective feeling that we have. This forgiveness assumes a continuation of relationship between these two people. How else would the repenter repent seven times in a day if the relationship did not continue? When real repentance happens, real forgiveness is required. When real forgiveness happens, real community is maintained even in the face of sin. People at this point will want to come up with a bunch of justifications about boundaries and such. And, and some of those things are valid. And, but most are excuses for harboring bitterness in your heart and allowing that bitterness to be lived out in baptized ways in the life of the church. It's bitterness in our hearts that we baptize with Christian speak and we allow to continue in the life of the faith community. Listen, bitterness in your heart will, will keep you from God's grace. Hebrews 12, 15, God's promised it. Bitterness, the root of bitterness in your heart will keep you from obtaining the grace of God. Forgiveness matters. When Jesus says, I will forgive you, as you have forgiven others. When Jesus says, with the measure that you've given mercy, I will give mercy, he really means that. He really means it. Sin in the church is an issue, but the bigger problem is we don't fulfill the basic duties around it that that Jesus has given us here. So what do we do at this point? You might say, Cody, listen, you've gone too far. That is too far. This is too hard. That's too heavy. And I'll be honest, I was trying to be extremely heavy in this first part of the sermon because that's how the disciples took it, and they turned to Jesus. Look at this in verse five. They turned to Jesus and they say, "Lord, increase our faith." increase our faith. This is too hard. We can't do it. We need more faith in order to pull this off because this is, you say it's basic Christian duties, but we can't bear this weight. Jesus responds, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, listen, a mustard seed is very small, It's very small. In other words, the issue here is not how much faith you have at all. You think you don't have very much faith? Jesus says, that's fine, because the issue isn't about how much faith you have. And then Jesus continues, he says, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey. Now, here's where people get confused. They hear this and they think, if I had just a bit of faith, then I could do these miracles, right? That's what Jesus is saying, isn't it, Cody? I could uproot trees and throw them into seas. But this disregards the context and misunderstands Jesus' illustration. Look, part of why we miss this is because your Bible, uh, for some reason, they decided to put a header, unworthy servants, above verse 7, and divide verse 6 from verse 7, but Jesus is this is one, this is one opening of Jesus' mouth. Verses 7 through 10 are giving illustration for what he means in verse 6. We can't divide verse 7 through 10 from verse 6. So there are two points Jesus wants us to get across in verses 6 to 10. First, you think you need more faith but that puts the emphasis on you. And the emphasis isn't about you. It's not about you having a bunch of faith. It's not about you being some sort of huge faith warrior, you know, having this great amount of faith. In reality, just a bit of faith is sufficient if your faith is in the right thing. The point isn't the amount of faith. The point is the object of faith. That's what Jesus is trying to point their eyes to. And we see that illustrated in verses 7 through 10, the servants who understand who they are serving. They understand who they are serving and that in comparison to the master, they are unworthy servants. They see obedience differently than servants who don't understand that. And that brings us to our second point. Neither verses 1 through 4 nor verses 7 through 10 are about us. Or about the disciples commanding anything to obey? Where outside of verse 6 is there anything that's about the disciples commanding someone to obey? Nowhere. All those verses are about us obeying as disciples. It's about our obedience. It's about us being faithful servants, right? And so to take verse 6, as some sort of proof that with enough faith that we can cause other things to obey, is to rip verse 6 entirely out of the context. The miracle being illustrated is not our commanding of something else to obey, but our obedience to Christ's commands. Your wicked heart is the mulberry tree. Your disobedient heart is the mulberry tree. And if you had faith in Christ, just a little bit of faith in Christ, that disobedience would be ripped out and thrown into the sea with faith like a mustard seed, in Jesus, the rebellion of our hearts would be fixed. And like the servants, we would say, of course, King Jesus, it is only our duty. We are unworthy servants, and I am so glad to be it. Obedience, listen, obedience does mean that work happens, but the fountainhead of our obedience is not our work, it's our faith in Christ. That's the source. That's where it flows from. If you're struggling to obey, listen, the critical issue is not you doing more work. The critical issue is you putting more faith in Christ, in his promises, in his word. That's the issue. Why is it hard to forgive people? Why is it hard to rebuke people of their sin? It's not because it's such hard work. It's because we don't actually have faith in Christ that it will work out, that it will produce what he wants it to produce, that it's actually good for us and for the church. If you have a good memory, then you might wonder how verses 7 through 10 sync with a different story about servants back in chapter 12. Do you remember? In chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, there's uh, these good servants who do what they're supposed to do and the master arrives. And when the master arrives, it says that the, the, the master is very thankful for his good servants and he takes the towel and he has his servants sit down and he washes their feet and he prepares a meal for them because they're such good servants. And you might go, well, well, why is Jesus talking about servants in this way over here? And he talks about servants in that way over there. The point here. The point in Luke 12 is to reveal the grace of God to faithful servants. God's grace there is remarkable precisely because it's unexpected. Because you don't expect the master to do that. But here, Jesus is illustrating what the expectation should be for, stu- for servants. We, we should have no entitlement. I am, you are not entitled to anything. Anything. Christ died for you. He's forgiven all of your sins. You have eternity because of him. He's not entitled, you're not entitled to anything in this life. Your obedience is your duty out of gratitude for what he has already done for you. And yes, it is true that God is gracious and He serves us. And Jesus took the towel with His disciples at the Last Supper and He washed His disciples' feet. And yes, Jesus does that. Praise God. But when you begin to expect Him to do that, then your heart is wrong. Your heart is wrong. You're no longer seeing yourselves as the unworthy servants that you are. So, so two things to this attitude. First, their attitude towards obedience is that it's their basic duty. These duties, these four things that I talked about earlier, they are not superhero Christianity. Jesus is saying this is baseline. This is starting point Christianity. Starting point Christianity is you care about not sinning, you watch yourself, you rebuke sin in the, in the lives of other disciples, and you forgive people when they repent. That is baseline How can we take on the name of Christ, saying that we are Christians, when we can't do the most basic things that Christ himself exhibited? Second, their attitude towards the object of faith is, as I said, void of any entitlement. They are unworthy servants. It's It's not bad for a person to recognize they are unworthy, when in fact they are actually unworthy. I mean, this is something that our culture does not understand. We think that we got to tell people that, oh, no, 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 you're worthy. You're worthy. But look, we all look into our own hearts and we go, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Even the sinner who doesn't believe in Christ, when they are honest with themselves, they look into their heart and they go, I know what I think. I know what I've done. I know the darkness in here. I'm not worthy. They know. I need someone else to make me worthy because I am not. And when we communicate, oh, no, no, it's all about you. Jesus, Jesus does not help us find our inner worth. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus' objective is not to help you find your inner worth. Jesus' objective is to give you his worth because you are in no way, nowhere worthy. And that's what he's done on the cross. That's the miracle. That's the joy. That's the gospel. And servants who realize this become thankful instead of entitled, they become servant-hearted instead of self-absorbed, they become others others minded instead of self-conscious. You don't have to sit around and look at your heart and how dark it is all the time because you can look to Christ and then be obedient. Obedience is good. It's good for us. How can we have this attitude? It all comes down to not it, it all comes down to knowing and trusting. In the object of faith, in the Christ of faith. That's what it comes down to. These things are only our duty to our God who planned from the foundation of the world to adopt us as sons through the sacrifice of his one and only true son who literally did nothing wrong his entire life. Who did the duty for you that you were supposed to do and failed to do. And then died on the cross to take that record and... Apply it to your account. He is worthy. He is worthy. We are not. And yet, He makes us worthy. God has poured out on us an abundance of riches to even serve him to be his hands and feet is a privilege and a benefit in and of itself we pour our cup out for him and then we look down into our cup and what do we find but that he's filled it again this attitude does not come from staring at ourselves or staring at the duties and going i don't know how to do this increase my faith no the this attitude comes from staring at christ Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let me turn there. I should have had it bookmarked, right? It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking what? Looking where? Looking to ourselves? Looking to what we need to do? No, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did the duty that we could not do. He paid the price that we could not pay. And now he is enthroned in heaven interceding for us so that we can actually do it. You can actually do it. Do you believe that? And it is actually good for you. Obedience to God is good because we have a good God. Let us pray. Lord,